There is a saying that goes that the UK and USA are two countries separated by a common language. I don't know how true this is, but today's guest will be part of our transatlantic series where we talk to entrepreneurs and business owners in the USA and continue the special relationship that our politicians talk so much about. Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Koch, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week, we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film, and a favorite single or album, and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at The Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. Hello and welcome back to The Cashflow Show. I'm Clayton M. Koch, your host, and today our guest is Dr. Candy Campbell. We're trying to create an environment where we reach out and talk to people who are across the pond, who are basically in a position where they are business owners, entrepreneurs who have their own story to tell. And Dr. Candy Campbell is a very, very intriguing figure as far as I'm concerned. She's done so many things that I don't even know where to start with her biography. But what I want to do is to let Dr. Candy introduce herself and tell us a little bit more about her. Well, thank you very much, Clayton. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, the the whole idea of introducing yourself is sometimes difficult for business owners. So I hired a publicist to tell me what to say. And so I'm going to tell you what she told me I should say (laughs) to encapsulate the bio. So I'm an international speaker and award-winning actor, author, and filmmaker who works with corporations and organizations to tear down walls and build bridges. You paid a good price for that introduction and bio. And you know something? I think you got your money's worth. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, what was the start of your career like? Because I know what you do now. And at the end of the day, that's what I want to tease out of you, because obviously I think it would be interesting for the audience to know the transition that you've made to where you are now, because Let's say then, let's give them a bit of a clue. The last discussion we had, you were getting ready to pack your suitcase and run out to the airport to be Florence Nightingale. Indeed, indeed. So my third solo show is called An Evening with Florence Nightingale. And that is a character portrayal. And I was in front of 7,200 nurses at the Atlanta American Nurses and Magnet Conference. And that has been a high point of my year, actually, since we've been sort of locked down until then. Because there is actually a, a big link between you portraying Florence Nightingale and your, I suppose, real life as a nursing professional, can, mm. can we go back to that? How did you actually start as, as, a, as a nursing professional? What made you decide that that's what you ah. wanted to do? Okay, well, 
the the start was that my first degree in is in theater and acting and i aspired to be a repertory actor and after i graduated i was uh in line to go to the university of minnesota and for different reasons life took a change and i wasn't able to go to take my masters in theater but i thought well i'll go to new york and you know i'll i'll get through that way. And so I did some summer stock and the, um, the outcome was that the director at the time, uh, what do you say? Put the moves on me. Now, nowadays they say it's a me too problem. And, uh, so I quit acting after that. I quit the show. I told him that's not the way I roll. He said, you're going to New York. You know, this is the way that the business is played. And I said, not for me. So I didn't know. Yeah, it was very depressing. As a matter of fact. Yeah, I sort of grieved that whole that whole career glitch for about 20 years. But in the meantime, you know, I think Providence has another way of using the missteps, the slips and the misses. And so I took this job that I referred to before, and that was as a flight attendant for Pan Am. Yes, that is why I lived in London for two years. Wow. Yeah. So so I'm, I'm going to detour slightly. Was it seen as being quite glamorous being a flight attendant then? Yes, it was. And and uh, we used to joke while we were doing things like uh, looking through the dirty trays for somebody's uh, dental retrain, retainer, you know, that we, where was the glamour? You know, I'm looking for my glamour here. <laughs> yes, it was in a time when not everybody was flying. So I came in in 1971, just as the 747s were becoming used. And uh, so it was about four and a half years into flying all over the world. And I mean, literally, it's easier to tell you where I didn't go than where I went. And I lived in six cities in five years in that time. And what happened was that one day I say, it's one of my signature stories, I got the call to be a nurse as I was pondering my fate with my colleague on takeoff. We were talking about we'd both flown a few years. We we're both now mid-20s. Our biological clocks were ticking and we were thinking of what else could we do with our lives that we could have a normal life because we were just basically never home. We were we were out for like 20 days a month very often. Wow. It's very yeah. Very difficult. So as it turned out, there was turbulence, bad turbulence during that flight. And the flight was from New Delhi, India to Pakistan, Karachi, Pakistan. Okay. Yeah. And so that particular flight, because of where we were and where we were going, was filled with Indian natives and Pakistani natives. And they, you know, it's kind of like England and Scotland. I mean, people, you know, families live in both places. Of so it was full of just plain, you know, people and grandpas and grandmas and babies and ducks. It's the ducks <laughs> that I'm, I'm worried about. <laughs> I tell you, 
international rules, you know, were different. So anything that you could shove under the seat, even in a straw bag, you know, there they were. Sometimes they'd get out. It was it was interesting. And we hit this really bad turbulence. And of course, we were told to sit down. So we were in the back of the, the tail of the plane and we had this ringside seat as 124 people vomited in unison. Can you believe that? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. And that was the day that I learned, well, there's got to be two sorts of people in this world, some to run to help and some that run to hide. And I ran to help and she ran to, <laughs> ran to hide. <laughs> and when it was all over, you know, she said, oh, how in the world did you do it? Well, oh, I didn't really do anything in the day everybody had a blanket. So I just sort of reached up and covered the muck and, you know, did my best to, you know, hand people barf bags and whatever. And it wasn't a lot. You're making this seem really glamorous. (laughs) (laughs) So as it turned out, during the same flight earlier in the flight, there was a gentleman who I happened to see when I was in first class fetching something. And and he, um, you know, as I was passing, he waved at me and I asked if I could help him. And I realized that he was gasping for breath. So I had gone and we at the time we had oxygen on board. And so I, you know, helped connect him into a, the oxygen and found out that there were other flight attendants there who had been nurses and they thought I was a nurse because I just jumped into the floor and did what I did. Of course. And so, so I told them, you know, it's interesting. When I was a little girl, I thought I might like to be a nurse, but my high school counselor told me that I probably couldn't, you know, pass the courses because I only got B's and C's in science. And so uh, they said, well, and I said, but I'm kind of thinking of going to nursing school. They said, you're doing it backwards. <laughs> nursing is difficult. This is easy. <laughs> so I went back to my seat and my colleague who was in the back with me said, it's so awful. I don't know how you you know, managed to keep your sanity during that time. And I said, well, you know, if it wasn't so sad that everybody was sick, it was kind of pretty, you know? artistic ribbons of vomit and (laughs) you can tell you're in nursing because you you approach that with such vigor whereas i'm sitting there going oh my god no and then she said you've got that sixth sense of humor you should be a nurse so six months later i was in school for nursing your nursing career happened as a result of your time at pan am when pan am Mm. was a big thing but what I wanted to talk about was your life. When did you get the performance bug? Was that pre your nursing? Oh, definitely. You know, if you remember why you went to college in the first place, you know, in my case, it was not automatic like it is seemingly today. Uh, I was the first woman in my family 
other than a distant aunt to ever go to college. Wow. When my I told my father that I wanted to go to school, that university, that all these people were telling me that I should go to university. He said, why don't I just burn the money? Mm. <laughs> but that's because women, you know, usually it, it just was different. It was a different era. Of course. That's you understandable. Know, it was a different era. Yeah. So I, I, I had in mind that at the time, before I wanted to be a repertory actor, I had in mind that I wanted to be in broadcast journalism. I was a journalist in high school. Okay. And I liked research and uh, digging for stories. I like stories. And I was an award-winning speech writer and I, I delivered extemporaneous and humorous speeches in um, with a speech team and went to state, you know, won some awards and all of that. So I, I went to college with that in mind. And then right away, the department head where I was said, well, you're a speech major, so you'll be on the debate team. And I said, oh, I don't think I like debate. I, those people, those people that I know that do debate seem to be so puffed up about themselves. And I don't want to be that kind of person. And he's like, you will debate. <laughs> so um, I, I, I look at the past and my career, mm -hmm. short lived, short lived career as a debater. In the same way, I look at my uh, prowess or lack of that in the sport of bowling. I have the dubious distinction of having rolled 16 consecutive gutter balls. That, that's quite an achievement. <laughs> yeah, that's what everybody couldn't believe it. Just, God, she's got to get something sometime. No, no, I'm really bad. You do know statistically that the odds on that are incredibly high. No, they, they gave me a prize. But it was with my youth group, you know, they gave me a prize for the worst ever bowler. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't get a, a prize for a really bad debater. But given that the debate topic that year was resolved, that the United States should substantially reduce its foreign policy commitment. I was, this was during the Vietnam War. And, and so I was out of my element, let's oh, just dear. say. I was pretty bad, pretty bad. And at the same time, my roommate was a theater major. And for fun, on the side, we were doing silly gigs over at the college TV, TV studio. And my work-study job was as the director and manager of the college radio station. Oh, so right. One thing led to another and I got cast, you know, for fun. I didn't know what else to do. I got cast in some shows and found out it came pretty naturally to me. That's how it started. Is the combination of nursing and acting a natural one for you? Yes, and as I say, as we say in improv, yes, and uh, the reason I'll tell you, it, it occurred to me as soon as I got to the hospital in my first clinical and that when you are a nurse and you start out the day with your client assignment, your patient assignment, you get a little bit of their story, right? 
And because I had been well-trained, my, my father was in the restaurant business. So that was also my first job. You know, okay. some of my first work was meeting the public. Of course. And of course, having done PR and speaking, um, well, you could say professionally, but I, you know, it was part of my salary. I would just go around and, you know, speak at schools or, you know, wherever, um, uh, conventions, you know, they, they, they used that skill. And so uh, what happened was that I recognized when you walk into a room, it's like theater of the real, because it's not just a script. This is their real life. And it's better than theater in so many ways, because on stage, you hope that the point of whatever it is that you're performing is going to touch the hearts of people and give them some joy or give them some thought, you know, but in nursing, oh my goodness. Well, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure. Almost everybody's either been a patient or had a family member who's a patient. And you know, it's very important that you know how to relate to people. When did you start to take acting? I wouldn't say use the word seriously, but when did you start to really dig into acting? Ah, well, that involves then a little bit of a personal uh, story. So as it turned out, I started nursing school and got married basically within the same time chronologically. And as it turned out, I was in LA and, um, the man that I married, I call him my husband, uh, <laughs> was... That's a good term, actually. <laughs> not not my own, but I use it, was a person who did not... Tr- he did not want me on stage. I, I think it was, the, you know, his little problem. He was thinking that there would be monkey business going on yeah. and... It was a trust issue, I'm sure. So I didn't. I, that's when I started painting. And my house was full of my paintings. But then when the divorce happened in 1992, um, it was difficult. And after some months, I just said to myself, raising three children alone, I need to get laughing again. And I want to be in community and, um, you know, it was, it, I had moved so to be closer to family. So what I did, I, I answered an ad and started taking a class for stand-up comedy. <laughs> what? I need to stop at this point. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but why is your life not a movie? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's so funny. So many people, have you heard that old saying that if if three people tell you you're drunk, you should lie down? Yeah. So many people keep telling me, you're writing all these other books. Why aren't you writing your autobiography? I really need to do that. Yeah, I think you should do because I, 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 I just see movie i don't even see movie i see um a netflix special over three four nights you know <laughs> you've got so much to pack in that I, I feel a real disservice because you've got so much to say and it's just fantastic so you <laughs> I've, I've stopped your story but um so the, the wasband is, is out He's he's been he's been given the what as we say in the uk as you know the sack um <laughs> 
<laughs> for your American cousins, um, uh, what would you say? What for, what do I say for American cousins? Because you don't use the oh. site. Oh, well, you know, having lived in London, I, I think I probably did use that expression. <laughs> I, I just said that, well, I'm not going to go into okay. it, but <laughs> it was dramatic. Let me just say that. It was dramatic. So I started taking stand-up comedy classes, and the thing that I noticed was there was a class of about eight students. They all were a lot looser, a lot more fluid in their delivery. And I was anxious because it was difficult for me to get up in front of people and not be a character, a scripted character. Right. To just be yourself. Well, I wasn't, you know, necessarily happy with, I, I just, you know, didn't want to do it. However, they were all taking improv. Ah. And that's how it started. I was like, oh my goodness, it was a safe space. I learned how to be spontaneous and go with the flow. And it changed my life, both personally and professionally. Now, what's interesting is, is that there may be some people listening who don't know what improv is. And so if you can explain that to them, that would be brilliant. Mm. Well, I should say that it's based on some cognitive development theories. We start with Piaget years ago in the mid 50s, I think it was 1950s. And uh, he wrote he, he was uh, he was testing children who were young, trying to figure out how people develop and and the 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 nexus of their personalities okay. and the the idea was taken up by a woman named viola spolin and when she started writing uh improvisation for the theater uh, the idea of improvisation had been around for what decades millennia well, in course. the arts of course right right so you if you googled it you'd get tens of thousands of hits on jazz and art and now theater, of course, thanks to her. But, um, you know, in theater, it's sort of like tight rope walking without a net because you don't have a script. And the whole idea of it, it right now, at least in the in the United States, I'm pretty sure in the UK, there's uh, at least one television show that is based on improv, but it's highly produced, if you know what I mean. Yes. They they cut out anything that the sponsors don't think is worth a laugh. And the reality is that when you're not scripted, sometimes there's poignant bits and things that just aren't particularly funny and aren't, you know, they're just sort of, nah, okay. But if you go to a live theatrical performance of improv, there's a lot of audience interaction and the fun and the comedy is generated spontaneously and nobody could plan it, which is one of the, the beauties of improv is that it is spontaneous and you know it's not scripted. One of the main programs that came on UK television was a program called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yeah. Which featured um, some American comedians 
who were absolutely brilliant at it. There was one particular lady who I did have a big crush on, I must confess, called Josie Lawrence. Um, uh, and Josie Lawrence was really, really good. Um, she was very much a typical English rose, but she, what she did, it was, it seemed as if she was actually sort of being quite straight, but she, she always seemed to find herself in the funniest of situations. And, and, you know, whose line is it anyway, ran for, for quite a long time. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you had the same program in the US or? Indeed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's produced here. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, when I'm doing workshops on improv or keynotes uh, involving improv, I always tell the disclaimer that what I'm teaching and what you're about to experience is not the same because it's not produced. The separate or differentiator between improv and scripted is always strikes me as somebody who's a classical musician who tends to read from a score as opposed to maybe say a jazz musician who basically has X amount of a, a chord sequence for want of a better expression and they basically use that chord sequence and then use it as a jumping off point. And at this point you're going to tell me that you play musical instruments well i do but i i don't play them very well <laughs> but that is true that and you know and I, when i moved uh, before covid i actually gave my piano away to a household with young kids who wanted to but but i i moved across the united states okay, and yeah. i just I just didn't bring it with me. Yeah. And I was just thinking the other day, gosh, I um, I miss sitting down to a piano. Well, guess what? My my daughter who lives in this area, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area now. Okay. She just got a, a baby grand piano. Ooh. So um, I'm salivating over that. But, you, you know, I, I learned some chord progressions and then in in the day when my kids were young um i and i also played guitar it was one of the things that i picked up during the time that i was flying yeah because i could take it with me and entertain myself i didn't have to go pay for entertainment or sometimes you know i don't know about you but i am not an extreme extrovert i need time alone yeah and i'm a bit like that but i think it's nice to be around people, but I think Denzel Washington said something. He said, it's great to be around people, but I need to go away and recharge before mm -hmm. I can continue that kind of dialogue with people. And uh -huh. I think uh, uh -huh. I, I think we're both in agreement on that one. I think it is important. And yeah, yeah. there's a lot to be said for it. Yeah. And then, you know, I during those uh, married years and even after I was... Um, I had uh, I, I directed a kids choir at church and used either the, the guitar or the piano and I created songs, you know, why not? It was fun and I liked it. It was mostly for my own amazement. So <laughs> good for fun. you. But I'm not that great. But you have just had a myriad of different careers, different situations in your life. When did you fall in love with Florence Nightingale? Well, thank you for that question, because I love to tell this story because it's unique as well. The year was 2010 and I was teaching at a university. And one day during a faculty meeting, the librarian that was assigned to the School of Nursing came in at a meeting and said, did you all know that this is the year of her 100th 
anniversary of her death. Well, we all knew that, but it's like, what kind of a, it's not exactly a holiday, um, but it was a notable year in nursing. Okay. She's been dead a hundred years, 2010, but she said, here's something. The Brits have done a great, a great deal of work to bring her 200 books and articles and, and as many of more than 10,000 of her letters extant, they have digitized them. Wow. And we have them, she said. You don't have to pay for them. They're in the library. Come and get them. Mm-hmm. You know, come look. Well, I guess I'm one of the only people who really dived into it. But, you know, I couldn't help it. The, the first, I had already read one of her books, but as I learned more about her history and as I started reading her letters, you know, well, you're English, so you know that in the day, and, you know, she lived in the 1800s, Correct. mid the late 1800s, the post office delivered to, to her, she talked about three or four times a day. Yeah. They didn't. They didn't have phones. They had the post office. Yes, of course. And that is why so many letters are still remain. People just kept them. And uh, I just found that she was such an interesting person. Of course, she's the icon of nursing and everything. Anyway, here I was in 2013, and I had, I had come to a, a personal point where I had finished reading almost all of these works. I just, it was like my, my guilty pleasure. You know, other people are watching TV. I'm like turning on the computer and saying, I wonder what happens next in her life. (laughs) It's like a, it's like a mini series unfolding right in front of your face. Yes. Yes. She had a fascinating life. And so I'm telling people it was a holiday party and I'm a member of the National Speakers Association. So it was a holiday party there in San Francisco area where I'm where I was from. And one of my colleagues hears me, you know, he's he's like off in the distance and he sees me with a group of people going on and on and on about Florence Nightingale. Well, interestingly enough, not too long a time prior to that, I had finished my doctorate and he, I guess, thought that I would be talking about my doctorate, which was all about improv to improve healthcare. Well, but that was not what I was talking about. And so he came over to me and said, now, wait a minute, I'm confused. Let me get this straight. You're a nurse. Yes, of course. (laughs) And you've already had two solo shows. Yes, I have. Why isn't this your third solo show? And I'm like, oh, not so much work. I just don't, oh my gosh. Do you know that friend called me the very next day and he said, Florence told me from the dead, you should. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess he's going to say that Florence and he were pretty tight back in the day. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, the other thing he said was, oh, and you're because he had heard me, you know, my side gig, once I got divorced, I got a commercial agent. And because I studied dialects and, you know, I had gone back to uh, to acting classes and everything. And uh, I was I was pretty good. So 
he had heard me on a commercial and, and earlier in that time he had said uh you know i thought you said you were doing some voiceover and i said yeah there's one that's on right now you might have heard it and i mentioned it and he said that's you well you know yes and i it was not an english accent but i i told him that you know happily uh i lived in england and you know i could do the accent so <laughs> We'll come back to that in a moment. <laughs> because I did some research for this podcast. And one of the things, obviously, I, I did see your performance as Florence Nightingale. And I was impressed by your accent, I must say. I, I must say, not, not many people from the States get it right. You usually either get the very over-the-top British upper-class accent or the really, really bad Cockney accent. Um, there's obviously, is it Dick Van Dyke in? Yeah, that, yes, that, I know it, it's bad. That, 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 that's that's pretty bad. Um, yeah, then Mary Poppins. Yeah, Mary Poppins, that's it. Then there's the other one, Don Cheadle in Ocean's Eleven. Oh. Don Cheadle's a great actor. He's a really nice guy. I've never met him, but he comes across as a really nice guy. But that part really was made for Idris Elba. It really wasn't fair for him. He, he did great in the acting, but the actual Cockney accent was, oh, it was dreadful. It was, a, I'm thinking about inserting into these podcasts uh, a, a how to speak Cockney for, um, uh, for <laughs> our American listeners, <laughs> which they may love or which they may hate, but at least it will be authentic. <laughs> oh. So... You mentioned about your time in England and obviously for uh, Florence Nightingale, which we'll come back to. Would you consider yourself after that time in England and studying Florence Nightingale, would you consider yourself a bit of an Anglophile? Oh, definitely. I, I love London. I love going back to visit. In fact, we were supposed to go back again with the show this last year. We're supposed to go to Toronto, Dublin and London, but you know, COVID. We are where we are, yes. What made you fall in love with London? Well, part of it was where I lived. So this was the funniest thing. You know, again, Providence, you know, how, how you come to meet people and, and cross paths with people. In the day, um, when I was uh, working for Pan Am, I had, uh, uh, they used to lay us off sometimes when it was slow. Right. And and in certain times of the winter, it was slow. And so um, in order for us to make use of the time, they would give us a choice. They'd say you can collect unemployment for X amount. It's what, two thirds of your salary or something. Or we'll send you to language school because all of us had to know a language and you can brush up on your language and so there you go. You can do that and then you'll get your full pay. You'll oh. just be on an educational, you know, like a sabbatical kind right. of a thing. So the first time that happened, uh, I went to Germany. My languages are French and German. I had a grandma who spoke either one. So even though I didn't speak much with them, it came naturally for me to learn languages. And so it was fun you know, lived with a German family. And there I met a fellow I became engaged to who was English. Ah, and, ah. 
Ah, so it was there. <laughs> and lived in London. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so it and was that English English love you fell in love with. Ah, <laughs> uh, he, 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 I... I've lost touch. I don't know whatever happened to him, but he was really a great guy. And um, then interestingly enough, like I said, this, this crazy quilt of life, when I returned home and thought I'd never see him again, I had a little letter in my mailbox at Pan Am saying, you've, you're either going to be laid off now that you're back from sabbatical, you're either going to be laid off or you have a choice of going to one of two um, uh, cities where we have opened up uh, a base. And one of them was London. Uh-huh. The other one, yeah. And so that's it. I, I moved there. And then it wasn't too long after that, maybe a few months after that, that we broke up. Oh. And so, but but that said... It was it was just great. And where I lived now, let me think. Do you know London well? Are you in London? Yes, I am. Um, I'm oh. in <laughs> I'm in southeast London, um, oh, a place okay. called Lewisham, um, okay. which is about ten minutes from London Bridge. So okay, okay. I I have a general remembrance of where that is. Well, I was on the corner of Cheney Walk. And uh, oh, what was that? I, I'm not sure what the corner was, but anyway, it was directly across from Battersea Bridge. Ah, right. And Battersea Park. Okay. Oh my goodness. It was so perfect. It was an old Victorian that had been chopped up into a few flats. And so there were three of us flight attendants who lived in the main part of that Victorian. And I lived on the fourth floor, the top floor. (laughs) (laughs) I was in really good shape in those days, (laughs) (laughs) but, but because, you know, it, it, it was really fun one day or one evening, it was a Saturday evening. Um, there was a knock at the door. We weren't expecting anybody. And I was basically the only one home. So I ran down, opened the door and Ted Kennedy was there. Okay. (laughs) The Ted Kennedy. Yeah. It turned out. And of course I, at the time I said, well, I'm an American. You can come use my phone if you, if you're lost, (laughs) you know? And he said, no, that's all right. My driver must've gotten it wrong. Well, turns out John Wayne had a place on uh, (sighs) Cheney lane, you know, just like, over two blocks. So it was it was similar to other things that happened. People who were looking for John Wayne. One day there was a little lady. I came in from a trip. It was about eight o'clock in the morning because we'd flown all night. And by the time I'm, you know, coming up to the doorstep, there's a little lady sitting there, an older lady, yeah. a little person, little hat. And I said, can I help you? And she said, well, I know he's here. <laughs> I said, who? Because there weren't any men living with us. You know, we're all just a bunch of gals. Who, are you, who do you mean? She said, I know Mr. Wayne is in town. <laughs> and I said, oh, you have the wrong address. He's over on, you know. Cheney Lane, 
And she said, oh, I know you've been told to say that. <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> so so was she, would she be described in modern terms as a John Wayne groupie? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. An older version. Yeah. Yeah. Very cute. <gasps> Oh, this is amazing. I've been doing this. Um, <laughs> how easy has it been to turn your passion into a career and a commercial audience? Well, there have been, it's not without challenges, let's say that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sometimes, well, one of my little taglines is, blending art and science for positive system change yeah that sounds because good. thank you as a clinician before i decided that i would try and go up the ranks in leadership i wasn't how can i say you know american healthcare is a little bit different than english healthcare too and we won't get into that. But, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to go there. <laughs> yeah, I, I experienced what it's like in your country. So uh, anyway, that said, I, I also came into nursing not uh, just right out from secondary school. So I had been in the world. I had been in corporate America, as I mentioned. I had done PR. I, I believe I understood and I understand what it's like to deal with the public and put your best foot forward. But what I found in healthcare was that there was this, well, siloing, if you will, and nurse nurses were very much on the bottom of the totem pole. Yeah. And I saw some bad behaviors, mm. bad behaviors. Uh, I saw a doctor throw a chart at, towards a nurse once. Some doctor threw a pencil at me once just to get my attention. It's like, oh, my God. Um, we used to have to, there were, there were not enough chairs before computerized charting. There were not enough chairs to sit down and write your notes. Okay. So if there was a doctor there. They would come and clear their throat. <clears throat> which meant get up. I want to sit there. It was a different time. Yes. So because I knew that there were, an, there was another way to be as a team, because in, in the, the experience of being a crew member, there was very little animosity that I experienced. It was, we were very well trained. It was the military model. You respect each other. You pull together as a team, and it is true that the captain was the last word, but it wasn't like they lorded it over you. No, mm. it was very much a familial experience because we had to do, as they say, form, norm, storm, and perform. Yeah. We had an hour or so before takeoff that we would decide who was going to do what and what special needs we had on the airplane that day, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody brought their best game and we put our, we, you know, most of us put our personal life aside just to give over what we needed to accomplish the goal of getting everybody there safely and, and pleasantly having a good experience. Well, I just was so naive. I figured that 
nursing being the profession of caring, that that would be a similar thing. But then I got in the hospital and saw all this politics. So that was the challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. But what we're going to do is go back slightly to Florence Nightingale. Because what I want to know was, what was the reaction like from the corporate world? And how did they relate to you basically performing Florence Nightingale and her achievements in relation to the 21st century? Ah, well, first things I must tell you is that by the time I did that show, started it, then I was already an academic. So I wasn't, I mean, I was still a clinician taking students for one-to-ones or what have you, uh, clinical performance in the hospital, but uh, it was academia. Now, here's, here's the challenge. When, and maybe this is similar to you or some of your listeners, when you have been trained in more than one area mm-hmm. and you've ex you've gotten to a certain level, you know, you, you are a professional. I was already a a union actor for, and started, you know, my, my whole career, actually my first um, commercial international commercial was when I was a flight attendant. Wow. I was, yeah, I was 23. And because I was already working PR for Pan Am, they asked me to be in a commercial. So that was my first, you know, paid acting gig. And then, you know, it, I, I became a SAG actor um, anyway, after that. So I, I already had the side gig. And like I said, as of 1992, when I was in San Francisco area, got the commercial agent, all of my friends knew I had a side gig. Plus I had co-founded an improv company and was doing stand-up. Wow. So everybody knew about me. You know, I was a little weird, but you know, that's that. And and the first challenge was that I did my first solo show. And that I got a little bit of notoriety from that. You know, then the second one happened and it it got an extension, even more notoriety. Um, So in a good way, in a a good way, I think, I think a lot of people thought that I would do what uh, uh, what's her name? Naomi Judd did, you know, go all the way and just ditch nursing. But I didn't. I, I loved nursing. Good. So, good. so also among the many, many, you really are a polymath, aren't you, really, to be totally honest? I guess <laughs> what they would call you. You've also carved out his career as a public speaker and voiceover artist. So how easy was it getting into those lines of work? I love doing voiceover because as opposed to stage plays, which I also love, you know, stage plays, when I had three children to support. They were eight, 11 and 13. And I didn't have a, and I was working full time as a nurse. So for me to not have to do rehearsals at night or anything like that, for me, when my agent said, I've got a voiceover gig, all you have to do is go into the city for an hour and then come back and, you know, you can, you'll be home in time for dinner. (laughs) 
<laughs> great. great. Go for it. <laughs> and and you get a few hundred dollars for an hour's work. I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> and then of course it was nice that I that I had the ability to do all these different dialects. So So what are the tips that you would give to somebody who wanted to get involved in voiceover and public speaking? How would they go about it? Well, they're two different animals, actually. Uh, okay. So which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about voiceover. All right. Well, even though I was classically trained as an actor and I knew dialects, what I didn't know was the technology. And so I would definitely recommend going to a voiceover studio and learning the tricks of the trade, you know. Um, now, these days, for instance, you and I are in front of professional mics because COVID came exactly. and we had to we had to become our own little production studio here. So a lot of people already have part of that already down. And then also, thanks to COVID, more and more of these gigs are online and you don't even have to have an agent to get a job. So there's the pro and the con about having an agent and being, uh, well, you don't have to be a union actor to have an agent, but having an agent gets you usually the regional national gigs right. and royalties that come with that. <laughs> Uh, so I would say if you're interested, certainly go for it. Get, take a few classes and now you probably do it online. Yeah, so yeah. what I wanted to find out from you is this is because we've got the section. What are you like? You're supposed to say, in a what are you like as a company accent person um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> for our American cousins? I don't normally see the answers, but I've seen your answers. But I wanted to concentrate on the album that you chose. I can't even, isn't it awful? It's been a while. I no, don't even remember fine. what I told you, you. You chose Karen Jacobson. Oh, my friend. Right. And, I, and I, I'm heavily into music. So um, oh. I, I, I wanted to talk about her um, oh. uh, because I listened to that album. And so I went away, listened to it. And it's actually very good, really good songs. Um, she reminded me of a cross between Kate Bush, Tori Amos, and somebody else. Uh, maybe oh, Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, yeah, she's got that kind of voice. Yeah, that uh, mm -hmm. that would be one. Mm -hmm. the, uh, Carol King-ish. Oh yeah, yeah. very. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that that's what I really enjoyed it. It was it's a good album. And, yeah. you know, obviously, I, I thought that this may have been her first or second, but she's had about four albums out, hasn't she? Oh, yeah. 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 So I, I know that this is, uh, well, I'll just give her a little plug. Please so do. We, Please do. Karen Jacobson, <laughs> your time is yeah. now. <laughs> she's also known as the GPS girl because that's who you listen to. She has the Australian accent that oh. is in millions of whatever downloadable this and that and elevators and everything else yeah wow. and and her story well we met through national speakers association and her story is that she she wanted to be like olivia newton john and as a singer she moved to new york and then she saw an ad again providential they wanted somebody who had an authentic australian accent for it turned out 
the GPS system and the rest is history. So she didn't, didn't um, pursue music full-time for a long, long time, but during COVID she and her, her family, they all moved back to Australia and Mm. yeah, uh, I, I, (laughs) lately she's, she's been on Australian TV and such a radio and TV a lot. She's doing great. Yes, she is. I mean, as I said, it is a really good album. Very, very (laughs) well produced. Very well produced. Does she play the piano? Oh, yes. Well, because the the songs are very heavily piano led and I, I, I did notice that. So I wondered. In fact, you can go to her YouTube channel and see her. In fact, um, the the title cut. Oh, it's such a beautiful video. She, uh, beautiful. I, I just don't I can't even describe. Uh, she's on Whitby Island, I believe. And is that where the cover is that where the cover is taken? Because the cover looks amazing. Amazing. Yeah. It, it yeah. just. It's like, whoa, this is this is good. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm impressed. Karen Jacobson. Oh. Uh, Whitson from, Islands, not Whitby. Is Whitson, Whitson Islands. Whitson Islands. Karen Jacobson. Whitson. Excellent album. Really like it here um, in London. And um, uh, hope you have every success with it going forward. Great. I can't wait to tell her. <laughs> I talked about her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's, uh, she's famous now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm enjoying this immensely, but I know that time is running away with me. So I need to try and sort of get some more questions in before you have to go off and do some more acting, voiceover, music, uh, nursing, and all the other things that you get around to doing. You've mentioned, and we've discussed previously about Florence Nightingale, firm plans to come back to the UK. The public performances are very well attended and everybody loves her because she's the polymath. Oh my goodness. Um, And her life is just so interesting. So yes, a lot of nurses try and come, but uh, the general public loves the show as well. I'm happy to say. And as for the plans, well, uh, it's interesting that during the pandemic, you may have heard a lot of people left their jobs. And so our contact um, actually is retired. So, so now my agent and I are doing our best to, um, you know, create the tour and we have a lot of irons in the fire, but I can't tell definite dates or places. Well, so if you if you have some suggestions, let me know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mind doing my best. I'm not um, a theatrical person. I'm not a thespian by any stretch of the imagination, even though I like to think uh, I could be one. I'm, uh, I don't have that training, but any assistance that I could give, I'd be pleased to do so. That's the whole point of of these podcasts and these networking situations. People have heard your story today and they've just had just the tip of the iceberg. If people want to catch up with you, want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Ah, they can find me online at FlorenceNightingaleLive.com or my other website, the more educational one is CandyCampbell.com and they can email me at Candy, C-A-N-D-Y, at CandyCampbell.com. 
Excellent. You've got this voiceover thing so down pat. It's brilliant. I love it. It's just your presentation is just so spot on. It really makes it so easy. Um, oh, thank you. Dr. Candy Campbell, what can I say? I have really, really enjoyed this. And I do hope that when you come to London, that you and I meet up and we should have tea at the Ritz, the Savoy or somewhere like that. And be absolutely be be a pleasure to, to meet up with you. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to come and be on the show. It's really a great privilege to have you on. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. We've got a date. <laughs> I will look forward to it. We've come to the end of the cash flow show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom, and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five-star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes, which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world and spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for real people, real business, real talk.